Today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 10, verses, not chapter 10, chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. This is the word of God. Lord, bless your word today. Lord God, open up our ears, open up our hearts. Lord, this is very common scripture to go over, but Lord, there is a power, there is a punch to it that we need today. There is a command, there are several commands that you give us, Lord God, that are not, we cannot fulfill them in our own strength. We rely on your strength to do so. Speak to our hearts, Lord God, may we not simply be hearers of your word, but be doers of your word. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you're a child of God today, it doesn't just simply mean you should be going to church. It means that you have been plucked from one kingdom and put into another. Your very nature is changed. I know that word child of God, it gets misused a lot. In fact, I remember there was a song that says, we're all children of God. That's not true. It's not biblically true. The Bible makes a clear delineation between being a creature of God, being being made in God's image, and actually being a child of God. Being a child of God means that you have a new nature. It also means that you've been plucked from one kingdom and you've been put into another. These kingdoms are at war. So, dear Christian, you are at war. You may be thinking, well, I haven't done anything to anybody. I don't have any enemies. Well, you have three mortal enemies. I always love telling this to teenagers. It's like, it's like you're Superman. You already have Lex Luthor, Metallo, and Darkseid. You don't even know about it. Um, you have three mortal enemies. You have this world. Now, I don't mean like this planet. You don't have to go home and start burning tires so you can show what's what. Um, you have this world, the culture of this world. The culture of this world is always going to be dominated until Christ comes back by the enemy I'll talk about in a second. This culture of this world is always looking to tear people away from a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. You have yourself, you have your own sinful nature that you continue to war against. This is defined very clearly in Galatians um, chapter 5 and 6. That we still have this old sinful nature, but we've been redeemed, we've been washed, we no longer have to live according to that. And you have a being who is older than humanity, Incredibly strong, incredibly smart, and he is bent on your destruction. Unfortunately, many people live like they're not in a war. Many Christians live like they couldn't care less, that it's not a big deal or it doesn't exist. What most people consider when they choose a church is not, does this church preach the gospel? Does this church equip me for battle? No, most people are looking for a church. And I've been a pastor for a number of years. Being an associate pastor, people are a little more honest with you and what they're looking for a church as opposed to being the senior pastor. When I was an associate pastor, people would tell me, well, I'm looking for a church. We want to know, does it have a good youth program? Does it have a good children's program? And I'm like, well, what do you mean by good? <laughs> oh, it's really engaging. They'll want to come to it. They don't say, it's going to prepare my son or daughter for when they get to college 
and they are going to be around tons of people who do not hold the same beliefs. Nobody ever asked me that. Um, they never asked me, is, is, is the, my children's ministry going to teach them the scriptures? They want to know, is it going to keep them engaged? That's another way, just way of saying entertained. And then they say, well, well what, about your, what about your worship team? I mean, are they like really dynamic? Are they really exciting? And it's like, I, I never know how to answer that. It's like, yes, but don't come here because of that. Come here because you want to worship Jesus. Um, what we're saying is, will I be entertained by it? Isn't it crazy? Wouldn't it be crazy if there was a war going on, there was a battle going on between two sides, and you decided the biggest thing that you are concerned about is how entertaining is this going to be for you? Wouldn't it be crazy? Okay, a battle is happening, and you're like, okay, let's get the family together. We're going to have a picnic so we can watch the battle. This will be really fun. That actually happened. In the Civil War, the first major engagement of the Civil War was known as the Battle of Bull Run, later known as the Picnic War. In the morning of July 21st, 1861, civilians from Washington rode out to Centerville, Virginia, to watch a Union army made up of green recruits who had just signed a 90-day, a 90-day up to a 90-day war, march, march boldly into combat. Men, women, and even children came to witness the predicted Union victory, uh, bringing along picnic baskets and opera glasses. Bull Run soon became known as the picnic battle among the civilian ranks where some of the Congress's most powerful senators, many of whom had called for such a campaign. They quickly learned that war can be unpredictable. Unfortunately, many of us, we, we have our picnic basket down. We're like, how entertaining is this going to be? And then we find out it's a war. And just like in the Battle of Bull Run, everybody had to run really quickly once the Union got overran by the Confederates. C.S. Lewis, when we talk about what we're talking about today is spiritual warfare. We're starting a series on the armor of God. And we're talking about this unseen enemy, this war that we're in. I want to center us according to um, something C.S. Lewis said that I thought was really good in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You pick apart those two, a materialist and the magician. The materialist. This is the one who doesn't know or doesn't care that they have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. They may even deny the very existence of such beings. In the New Testament, there was actually a group. There was a, um, there was a um, theological group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They barely believed in Yahweh, period. You know, they, they were sad, you see. And that joke never does get old, in case anybody's wondering. Um, you know, there's so much to be said, said here. It's what prompted Paul to say that if there was no resurrection from the dead, that Jesus didn't rise either. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In 2 Corinthians 2, 11 really sums up the point for us in stark reality. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The materialist is willfully ignorant of the devil's designs, and he is thrilled. 
We also have the other extreme, the magician. The Bible does not go into depth about demons. This has been to many people's displeasure for so long because they just make up stuff concerning that. People do have this unhealthy interest in demons. In the Islamic religion, there's a lot about demons and about the jinn. Um, I'm not going to go into all that right now. In the Kabbalah there is, you don't find a lot in scripture about demons. God knows we, have an, uh, we can have an unhealthy obsession over such things. And of course we do. There are books, there are websites, there's classes a person can take to learn all about the hierarchy of demons, the gates of hell, and all of it at its best, at its very, very best, is just make-believe. Worst, it's inspired by a spirit, but not the Holy Spirit. Completely unreliable, because if it's inspired by another spirit, it's by the spirit who is the father of lies. I like the word C.S. Lewis uses here for those who are obsessed over demons, and they, who, those people who go beyond Scripture to teach about them, they're a magician. They conjure what they're saying out of the ether. Deuteronomy 13 warns the people of Israel. This is, this is incredible. You need to write this down if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy 13 talks about if somebody comes into the camp and they perform miracles, genuine miracles, not a fraud. Genuine miracles, the signs and wonders of a, if a prophet or a dreamer comes into the camp and they perform genuine miracles, if they make predictions and those predictions come true. So once again, not a fraud. It says, but they tell you to worship another god? Disregard them. Discernment is so woefully lacking in the modern church. When people do this, and you know something? When you, people who tell you to worship another god, they will still give lip service to the true god. They did it back then, they do it today. But what they promote is themselves. I told my one friend, he'd sent me a video, and I said, is this just a two-hour breakathon? Because unfortunately, some of these people who, who claim to have special powers that nobody else has, all they want to do is brag about themselves for two hours, and at the end of it, they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll give God some bone, like, oh, and all glory to God, and I couldn't do it without God, or it's God doing it. But for two hours, it's constant them talking about themselves, promoting themselves. It's who are they promoting? The scripture tells us to not have any association with such a person. Today, they have a featured guest spot on Sid Roth or a, their own time slot on TBN. In the Reformation, there was five things that were stressed, the five solas. One of those is sola scriptura, by scripture alone. We judge everything through the lens of scripture. And here's an important thing. We do not look, we do not look for evidence of it, because anybody can twist scripture to make it sound like it's what they're saying. You look for evidence against it. If there's a clear command against what somebody is saying, you go with that over any kind of twisting they, they may be going through. The magician conjures this stuff either out of their own imagination or through demonic forces. When we look at Ephesians, this is not Paul's first time in Ephesus. And I think it's important when we look at Scripture to look at the context. When I was looking at the context of this, I was, in, I was interested how much of Acts 19 were Paul's first um, where Paul's first interaction with Ephesians, how much it feeds into this letter, but of course it does. If you were writing to somebody, you would reference your shared past, would you not? Paul has a shared past with the Ephesians, and it feeds quite a lot into spiritual warfare. Paul writes his letters to the Ephesians, and you will understand better the origins, when you, you'll understand this letter better when you understand the origins of this church in this town. 
Ephesus is a port city right by what is modern-day Turkey. It was one of the most rich and important cities when it came to trade. Paul's experience can be seen in the, in the book of Acts chapter 19. This would be a whole sermon series of itself, so I'm going to do my best to consolidate Acts chapter 19, Paul's experience in Ephesus, because it will feed into the rest of the book of Ephesians. The church in Ephesus starts with Holy Spirit power. Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds some believers there who have been baptized by John for repentance. Paul then baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and when he lays hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they start speaking in tongues. <laughs> Interestingly enough, there was 12 men in this first encounter. This is the genesis of the church in that city, and it mirrors the genesis of the wider universal church. It is baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And things, things explode from there. Paul starts doing so many miracles, and there are people who are getting demons cast out of them. He just walks by, and his shadow is enough to perform miracles. So you have these itinerant Jewish exorcists. And that's an interesting position, right? You're going around, you're trying to find people who are demon-possessed to, to deliver them. And uh, so they, they see Paul, and they're like, okay, if we just take like a rag he's using to wipe his head, we can do the same. And they start hunting demons, which i got to say is one of the most stupid things you can do. Why I say that is there was these seven brothers who were doing that very thing, and they would go up to demon-possessed people. The others were doing it the same thing. And they would say, they'd say, by Christ, whom Paul preached, we adjure you to come out of them. Adjure, that's a, I, in the English and the Greek, it means the same kind of connotation, which is, come out or you answer to me. It doesn't work well for them. I could. I, I, I have to watch. I put in my notes, don't over-explain the seven sons of Sceva, because one day you're going to preach on it, and people are going to say, you've already preached this message. The demon has nothing of it. He says, I know Jesus. I've heard of Paul. I don't know who you are. He then strips them naked, beats them, um, until they run out of the city. This is in the same general area of Ephesus. Paul comes back through Ephesus, and there is a disturbance that's a nice way of saying that many of these early Christians, including Paul, were nearly lynched. You see, there are people, um, there are people there getting saved, and the church was growing. This angered a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. He made idols for people to worship. But you know who gets angry when idols are being smashed? The dude making the idol. He gets so many people angry, and they nearly have a riot. From an outward view, Demetrius was the enemy of the early church in Ephesus, and he was out for blood. It's important to remember this, because I'm going to go back to this. In fact, I believe that's what Paul is doing in his letter. It's important to remember this, because that is a shared history Paul and this church has. And when the Holy Spirit has him write this letter, it is apparent in what will be read, what we'll go through later on here. This riot, this near riot, is not ended because people come to their senses. They were shouting, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, and they wanted blood. So what stopped them was a town clerk who reminded them that there were courts and there were laws, and, and, they, and they, not the way, not these early Christians, were in danger of being charged with riots. Every Roman province had a garrison of Roman soldiers there. 
And when you had a riot, if you were charged with being a riot, it might end up like what happened in Jerusalem before the time of Jesus when they had a riot and an attempted insurrection. And Pilate crucified so many of them, he wiped out a forest. That stops them in their tracks. When Paul starts talking about the armor of God, they know the power of a soldier. How much more powerful is a soldier who's donned in the armor of God? That's how that riot ended. The book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, most of the time when I've heard people preach on the armor of God, they skip down to verse 10. I was going to do that today, not even really talk about Ephesians. But when I was reading through this, when I was doing my research, so much of it is informed by what had happened later on, and Paul is really building up. And this is really, this is really the struggle. If you just like open up your Bible, point to a verse and read it, you miss, you miss so much. The author, and God is using this author this way, is he's building up a theme And then at the end, he's going to hammer that theme home. And that is what Paul does here. In chapters 1 through 3, it's a repeat of the gospel for the Ephesians. You know, I'm passionate about the gospel. I'm passionate about preaching the gospel to you every week. Because I see so often in Scripture, the apostles saw the gospel as the center, peace, and source of all theology and practice. If we don't, then really we're just making up our own religion instead of a relationship that God is making us in. The gospel is not just the plan of salvation, it is Christ. Paul points out some immensely powerful implications of the gospel for the Ephesians. They are part of a new family, a new kingdom, a new world. They have made, they have made enemies of the old world. Remember the riot? Remember Demetrius the silversmith? They're no longer in that world. When they were part of that world, everything was fine. In fact, Demetrius' very charge against them is not unique to the Christians. It was Jewish theology. The town clerk says, they didn't even say anything about Artemis. What are you talking about? And if you have a problem, take it to the courts. No. When we start living for righteousness, when we start living for the Lord, that is when the problem starts. Because we have now allied ourselves with a different kingdom. Also, that that in the gospel... In the gospel, we have unity. All of this plays into the metaphor of the soldier that Paul uses in chapter 6. Chapters 4 through 5 are practical. If chapters 1 and 3 are theological, chapters 4 and 5 are practical. Now that you are a new creation in Christ, you act and live differently. This is part of your nature. This is not a work. While this is true for every relationship you have, Paul focuses on three. Husbands and wives, children and parents, husband, I mean, bosses, and employees. Now, in the, in the scriptures, it does say slave and slave master. Luckily, in the United States, we do not continue to practice slavery, and we never practice slavery like they did in the old world. So the, the themes really are bosses and employees. There are several sermons in each and every one of this, so let me summarize it all in this. We mirror Christ in every relationship we have. We mirror Christ in every relationship that we have that he loved us so much he gave of himself. That is what we do in the relationships that we have. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 continues that theme. Then we get to verse 10. Paul outlines the new life the believer should be living. But he knows there are major obstacles, there are reasons why these believers are not living this life that he has been talking about. The obstacles first, this obstacle first tried to stop them from ever believing and being adopted into Christ's family. It is... It tried to do the same to you. 
Now, this wants to keep you from living the abundant life that God has for you. It wants to use you to sow turmoil into your family, friends, and hopefully even the church. In the last part of this letter, Paul, Paul shows us how to make our stand. All that builds up to this point, you should be doing all these things because of what God has done in your life. Now, this is how you do it. This is how you stand. This series on the armor of God um, is important, but before we go into that, we're going to talk about, before we go into the pieces, we're going to dive into how to be strong. My first point. My second point is how, who our real enemy is. And the third one is standing. How to be strong. Verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. They may, they, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Amen. Two commands. In verse 10 and 11, we have two commands. Be strong and put on the full armor of God. These commands are given differently, but the commands are commands nonetheless. Um, the way of things... Um, this is the way of things, not as a law to be obeyed, but as, but as a joy for you to participate in. Look at these commands, not so much, once again, so much as laws, but see them as things to tell you that you have to do to survive. If you're going to go white rod or rafting, and the person's telling you what you need to do and you put your hand over your ears, you're not going to have the best time when you get thrown from the raft. Well, I had to buckle up, what are you kidding? It's a bird in the water. If you're going to war and you just disregarded everything your CEO said, you 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 might as you might as you know you might as well look look make your funeral arrangements right there and then. Yeah. This is giving us the instructions. It's equipping us for the life that we are living because we do have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The first command is to be strong. The first command is to be strong. How do you get stronger physically? Well, you go to the gym. You do strength training. You do things that are difficult until they become easier, and then you find more just difficult things to do. You know, I don't know if anybody likes those 80s action movies, but one thing I loved in the 80s action movies, like Rocky, is the, the training montage. And, you know, he's jumping rope, he's running up the stairs, and all of a sudden, he goes from one level to the next, and, and you're like, but it's still a day, so how much, how much working out can you still do there, Rocky, over in Siberia, before you fight the big Russian guy? Training isn't quick in real life. In real life, you fail a lot before you succeed. It's the same spiritually. We are told, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The strength does not come from us. It comes from God. So our training has to be around surrender, not will. Look at Moses. He starts off as a stuttering herdsman. No family, no nation. Then he trusts God. Then he trusts God more. He trusts God more. And the person no one would have wanted on their team, God uses him to bring low the most powerful country in the world. This command is given in the passive voice. And what that means for us is that this is an always command to be strong in the Lord. We grow in his strength. As we participate in the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit is doing in our life, we grow stronger or we resist and we remain weak. This is in the passive voice, meaning that we always do this. We are always in this process. The second command, on the other hand, is to put on. This is in the middle voice, and it is for a point in time. This is a call to action. Put on the armor of God is not some passive process. It's not some passive process. We choose to do it. 
We choose to do it because we do not drift towards safety. We had an excellent discussion this morning in Sunday school talking about why we, why do we go back to legalism? Why do we go back to all these empty wells? Because it's comfortable. Because that is what we've known for so long. We don't realize that we've been brought to a new reality, a new world, a new life. So Paul says, put on the armor because we will not do it because we're bored. We will not do it just out of our own, uh, out of our own volition. We have to remember, put on the armor. We drift towards danger. We don't drift towards safety. I remember a cop one time told me about the, the vest that they wear. He says, it's really uncomfortable. He's like, when it's like, when it's 90 degrees out, he's like, you think I like wearing this thing? He's like, it's, it's cumbersome. I can't bend over the right way. He's like, but I'm still wearing it every day. Because one day there might be a bullet that has my name on it. I think we put way too much focus on being comfortable. We put way too much focus on having an easy life. An easy life is not a fulfilling life. We put on the full armor of God because we know we're in a battle. It wasn't about comfort, it's what's needed. The officer told me he wouldn't be ready for he wouldn't be ready for his calling that God had called him to if there was a crisis that happened if he didn't already have on his vest. In verse twelve, it amassed for us the true enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is, of course, talking about Satan, the father of lies. The devil has many titles and names in the Bible. Here are just some. Accuser, adversary, angel of light, Lucifer, liar, Beelzebub, dragon, thief, father of lies, the god of this age, and Satan. I would say we have three enemies. We have a sinful nature, but Satan was there at the tempting of Eve. We have this world, but Satan is the god of the culture of this world. That doesn't mean he's sovereign or has dominion. It means the culture of this world does not look towards God, but to their father, the devil. He is crafty. He is powerful. He's been around from before there were people. But here is something he is not. He is not all-powerful. He is not everywhere. He is not victorious. Finally, while he may tempt and he may lie, he does not force anyone to do anything. He does not manipulate. And he, and he, is, the, he is the power that is behind evil. So when we look at that, when we look at our true enemy is not our neighbor, it is not the other person, it is Satan. It changes the way we fight. Who does Satan use? I think this is probably one of the hardest things, because Satan does use people in his schemes. So like I said, Satan is behind all things evil, but that is not to say he does so directly. Instead, he and a third of the angels who have fallen have manipulated many into serving their ends. Who does Satan use? If you are listening to me and you are thinking, well, it's that relative I saw at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're missing it. Satan will use anyone he can. In Paul's letter, he is addressing believers and how they fall, they fail at living the godly life that God, that Jesus has for them 
I do not believe, and the scripture does not teach, that demons can possess Christians, but demons will absolutely use Christians to sow lie and deceit as they believe the lies and deceit that they spew out. They can lie to them. They can believe those lies for a short time. The answer to who does Satan use? Well, he uses anybody he can. He uses anybody who's not armored up. Kind of like in a, in a fight, in a battle, you have to have a uniform on so people know who's on whose side. When we don't have the armor on, we don't have our uniform on. We fight the wrong fight. The Arizona Cardinals player Patrick Tillman resigned after 9-11 from professional sports to serve his country after 9-11. He gave his last full measure in a battle that unfortunately should have never take place. See, Patrick was killed by friendly fire. For whatever reason, neither side understood. One side or the other just did not understand who the actual enemy was. We forget who the enemy is. It's not Biden. It's not Trump. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your boss. It is not the person slandering you. It is not the family member who really made holidays exciting this year. It's not the person at church who you are having an argument with. It's not even people who are adamantly opposed to the gospel and are bad actors in your life and in this world. The enemy is Satan. And Paul doesn't say this in a vacuum. I'm calling you back to what I talked about before in Acts chapter 19. Demetrius the silversmith, he wanted their blood. He was their enemy, right? No, he wasn't. He had no problem with Jews living in the area, and they taught that those idols that he made were nothing but silver. But all of a sudden, Christianity starts coming in, people start really believing. Now we need to do something. Now we need to do something. He was being used by another force. And God loved Demetrius and wanted him saved too. That's something for us to understand when you have the us-them mindset. God loves that enemy. God loves that enemy as much as he loves you. Amen. Our true enemy, we need to stop having friendly fire to attack people, the flesh and blood, to realize who the true enemy is. Think about this in the terms of church history. After the time of Paul, we're actually right almost at the, after the time of Paul, there, there arises a Caesar. A Caesar who fiddles while Rome burns. And then he decides to blame Christians and he sets them up on pyres throughout the city as, as lamps. Ephesus was a Roman city. They would have experienced intense persecution during this time. So can you imagine you're going to the store to go get some groceries, and on your way home you see one of your friends or family. They're up on a pole and they're on fire. You go back home and you come to that secret meeting and they read Paul's letter and it reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what must they do? They bless those who persecute them. They love those who hate them. The call that God has called us to is impossible without him. It's impossible without him. That's right. But when, we have, when, when he is in our life, when we have the armor of God on, we realize who the true enemy is. 
Verse 13, it tells us what our role in this great battle is. Verse 13, Therefore, put on the the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Our role is not to seek out and destroy, it is to stand. Many eager young men, when they enter the military, especially during wartime, they're often disappointed because they're not out there, you know, shooting up the countryside, things like that. They actually have to, you know, peel potatoes, mop floors, and other things. But they have to trust that their commanding officer knows more than them. They see the bigger picture. Our commanding officer understands that this cosmic battle has been raging since before this world created was created, and he has a plan. Our role in this cosmic battle is not to seek and destroy. The seven sons of Sceva thought that, and it didn't turn out so well. Our role is to stand. It would have been something, and it, this, this would have been something that anybody in Paul's day who served in the Legion understood. Up until a certain point, really up until the Greeks started making waves, the idea of warfare was everybody goes in, everybody runs at each other, and they just flail about until one side wins. The Greeks come onto the picture and they have their phalanx positioning. This is then used in Roman warfare as well. And the idea is that you find your spot, you stand. You have your shields one to another, you stand. They break against your shields. You slowly go for it until you've routed the enemy. So when Paul tells them to stand, he starts talking about the armor of God, it clicks for them. But yeah, yeah, just like the soldiers in the garrison, they stand. They make their stand. Everything about their armor was made to stand. We make a stand. That may not seem exciting, but it really, really is. Because it takes courage when everybody is bowing to stand up. Standing doesn't seem hard, and it doesn't seem glamorous. It's glamorous if the only praise we desire is the one who gives the order. There is nothing harder than standing when everybody else is bowing. A while back, I preached on the three Hebrew children who refused to bow to an image. Those in Ephesus church didn't have, a, um, didn't have a mob after them when they lived the way the mob lived. But when they lived the way God wanted them to live, all of a sudden, a mob is, is breathing down their necks. There will come a time when Caesar will have enough of the Christians. And he will demand that they... They take a pinch of incense as a way of worshiping Caesar. There was actually a sect of Christianity that thought that was no problem, that was a little compromise. They were persecuted into non-existence, actually. So they, 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 they declared Caesar as Lord, and they still died. But we are called to make our stand. We are called that when everybody bows, that we take our stand, that we continue standing, because the person who bows before God will not bow before men. Our enemy hates the sight of a person who refuses to not to a person who refuses to be his slave. A slave of sin, a slave of this world, but believer, we have no other choice. We can't sell our souls. Christ has already bought them. What is left other than to stand? Finally, we get to the armor. And I'm not going over the pieces of the armor today because it's important for us to understand why we put on the armor. We're going to go into the different themes and this will be longer study as we go through this, a longer sermon series, because we'll go over each different thing. And obviously, I could do a whole series just on truth, a whole series just on righteousness. Finally, we get to the armor. When seeing depictions of the armor of God, I've often seen something that looks really like medieval armor. 
That would not have been in anyone's mind when this letter is written. They would have been thinking about the Roman armor that they saw every day on the soldiers who stopped the ride that almost took their lives. The Roman armor, which every piece was designed to help the legionary to stand and stand firm, Paul tells them to put on the full armor twice. He's not messing around. He breaks it down piece by piece, but he does not give he does not give us the he does not give us the option of only putting on one piece at a time, but to put on the full armor of God. Amen. No, this is not written as a, this is not written as an allegory, but I do believe every piece has its own has its own file, its own uh, strategy to go over. I, th- I do believe that the Spirit, when he when he is having Paul write this, is doing so for a reason for that time. I won't be going on what is be going beyond what is written. But this is a serious business. We we are at war. Worship team, you can come up at this time. Really, in all of that, there's three commands. Be strong. Just like strength training goes, you can't just, you know, I, I know, you know, especially it's New Year's, so the gyms will be full. And people, you know, after, you know, one day of hard working out, they're like, why am I not already fit? I get that. It's a constant, it's a constant struggle to be staying strong in the Lord, and it is in conjunction with our willingness to submit to Him. We need to realize who our true enemy is. We need to stop friendly fire. To realize that if there's any power behind what is going on with somebody else, it is not them, it's the power behind them, it's it's the devil and his angels. Finally, we are told to stand, stand firm. Stand is hard. When at the job site, it's easier to lie than it is to tell the truth. Standing is hard, especially when everybody else is bowing to a worldly ideology and you say, no, I'm going to stand for righteousness. Of course it's hard because you have pastors today who are bowing down to world theologies. Once you preach the gospel, not a year ago, standing is hard. Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in holiness? This is how we become strong in the Lord. I wrote this down. Our progress in holiness is equal to how much we value the blood of Christ. Let me read that again. Our progress in holiness is equal to how much we value the blood of Christ. Amen. The worry so many people have, and the reason why we go back to legalism so often, is we're like, well, if you don't tell people they're going to go to hell if they say a bad word, well, they're just going to say bad words. Not if you value the blood of Christ. If you value every drop of blood that went from his brow, from his hands, and his feet, and his side, and you realize every drop was because of my sin, you grow in holiness. It's not something you can even hold over anybody's head because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Finally, today we choose to stand. Today, every day, we choose to either stand or bow. If we don't make the decision, we bow. We bow to so many things. We put up with so many things in our life, in this world. I could go into the, to the culture and all the things that we've, we've slipped on, but what about in your own life? What have you compromised on? What is the thing that you said, you would have said three years ago, I would never do that. Now you're saying, oh, it's fine. I mean... It's, it's, it's only a drink after supper that becomes like 20 and you pass out drunk, but you, 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 you justify it to yourself. That's the time where we've decided to bow. 
We bow to the sin, bow to the, what the devil is trying to do in our life, but we make the stand and we say, no more, no more, no further. We're going to end today in worship. I think it sounds like we must be muted up there because I'm not hearing that at all. Um, we're going to end today in a song of worship. I love ending service that way. Because that's where we fight our battles. When we worship, when we focus on God, He fights our battles for us. Amen. Understand that all these things, it's not a work. It's really just, it's really just submitting to what God is doing in our life. Every piece of the armor is a gift of God. It is not a work of the will, but a work of submission. And one of the ways we do that is in praise and worship. We'll be ending the service in, in a song of praise and worship today. I'll end in the benediction and the blessing. But no, every day you make that decision. Do I stand or do I bow?